Hello, I'm Clay Wallace, and I'd like to invite you on a tour of my hometown. Welcome to Any Old Place, a podcast of the Capital City Museum where we explore unique places in Frankfort, Kentucky, from the past and through the present. I'm standing on the front steps of the Elizabeth, an event space and garden on Wapping Street. It's a lovely old brick church with a towering steeple that rivals the dome of the former Paul Sawyer Public Library building across the street. Most people know it as the old Good Shepherd Church, the one students at the neighboring Good Shepherd School, like my sisters and I, would attend until both school and church moved to their current campus off Leestown Road. However, before it housed the town's Catholic church, this spot was home to First Presbyterian. This is the second episode in our two-part exploration of First Presbyterian Church. Last time, we spoke to three current members of the church to get a sense of its culture and character. This time, we're diving into its history and future. To start, though, I'm going to give the briefest possible primer on the Presbyterian tradition. We'll start more broadly with Christianity. Christians recognize God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish man who lived under Roman-occupied Palestine 2,000 years ago. Jesus was a wandering preacher whose primary message was that the kingdom of God was present and accessible here and now, regardless of outer circumstances, piety, or class. He accumulated followers and amassed crowds who'd come to witness healings and parables. Upon his third entry into Jerusalem, he was arrested and handed over to the Roman government, who tortured and executed him for subversion of the empire. The religion of Christianity began shortly after his death, when his disciples recorded their encounters with a resurrected Jesus. The name Christian comes from the understanding of Jesus as the Christ, meaning anointed one. In the centuries which followed, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority sect to the official religion of Rome. It then spread with the empire to become what is today the world's largest religion, representing one-third of the global population. Within Christianity, there's a wide diversity of traditions, among which is Presbyterianism. The Presbyterian Church originated in Scotland as an expression of the Reformed tradition. It's named for its organizational structure, in which decisions are made by the Presbytery, the Church's elders. During the European colonization of North America, Presbyterianism spread alongside Scots-Irish settlers. In Frankfurt, these Scots-Irish Presbyterians established the city's first denominational church in 1815. The original first Presbyterian church was built on Wapping Street, where I'm standing now, in 1824. When the congregation outgrew this space, it was sold to Frankfurt's Catholic community, which actually built the current brick structure around the former Presbyterian church. By the end of the 1840s, a new building at 416 West Main Street was constructed, where First Presbyterian Church has remained to this day. Today, the church on Main Street has expanded to include a sanctuary, an adjoining preschool, and a separate chapel, all surrounding a courtyard garden. In the fellowship hall, directly underneath the sanctuary, there's a timeline where one can follow the church from those earliest days to the present. William Bowker, a member of First Presbyterian since 1976, offered to walk me through the church's long history. This church, like the others downtown, was part of the foundation of the nation of Kentucky, Frankfurt, you know, and 
because it all happened about the same time. Mr. Bowker says the story of First Presbyterian started on a parcel of land owned by Thomas Paxton. And Paxton was a, a Revolutionary War hero. He was actually an aide-de-camp to George Washington. And as a result of his service, he was given a lot of land. I think it's 3,000 acres on kind of right where Franklin County and Anderson County come together on 127. And there we have been to this Upper Benjamin Church and have seen the foundation that is still there for that church. But they, several people met in his home beginning in about 1795 and had, they were Presbyterians and had Presbyterian services. And then they built this building, uh, the Upper Benson Church and worshiped in it for a number of years. And it's interesting that the pastors, Samuel Shannon, first pastor of the Upper Benson Church, they actually called a pastor, there were enough of them. Um, Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church particularly were very involved in missions to the West, what they call it, over the Alleghenies. And they were sent by, uh, out of Princeton University, uh, the uh, Th Theological Seminary there, by the president, uh, Mr. Witherspoon, for whom the street that the national headquarters of the Presbyterian Church is now on in Louisville. They, they renamed that street Witherspoon Street. So these were missionaries, and one of the missionaries, David Rice, was very, very important. And he is, is wonderful. Rice came, he didn't found Upper Benson Church, he, didn't, he founded churches in Danville and a number of places. He was part of the, the, uh, the Constitutional Convention in Kentucky. He almost was successful in getting slavery forbidden in the first Constitution, but didn't quite get the votes, but almost pulled it off. But he makes a wonderful statement about Frankfurt. He went, came to Frankfurt thinking about founding a church about this time. He says, I scarcely found one man, but few women, who supported a creditable profession of religion. Some were grossly ignorant of the first principles of religion. Some were given to quarreling and fighting, some to an intemperance, and perhaps most of them were totally ignorant of the forms of religion in their own houses. So he was not encouraged about, you know, Frankfurt, which had a few hundred people and became the state capital, of course, in 1792. But anyway, in spite of, in spite of his misgivings, Presbyterians did form a church. Um, there's a plaque, well, there, there, yeah, there's a plaque on our church outside this door. Thomas Paxton and two other men actually moved to Frankfurt so they could found a church in Frankfurt. And they found it in 1815. Um, the, the actual Frankfurt Church. It met, they met in the Love Tavern, which was right on the corner of Wapping and Wilkinson. There's a historical marker there too. And uh, Love Tavern, it's kind of a strange name for a tavern, but it's actually run by Mrs. Love. She was a friend of Margareta Brown, the wife of Senator John Brown, who was a member of the church. Um, they began Sunday school classes for the whole town in Love Tavern and met there for a while. I didn't know that John yeah. was a member of the church. Who? That John, John was, he uh, was sort of a reluctant member. Uh, John, of course, was the first senator from Kentucky. He was part of the uh, Continental uh, Congress before the, uh, you know, before the uh, Constitution. And he, um, was asked to become a, a ruling elder. You know, we're ruled by ruling elders. 
and we have a teaching elder who is the, the minister, the pastor. But, you know, it's a Presbyterian form of government which is federal, but on the local level, local decisions are made by a session that, that is appointed by the members. Well, he didn't feel that he was fit for such an august service, but he, he relented and he did serve uh, until his death uh, in 1837. So from 1829 to 1837, he was a, a ruling elder of this church. Uh, which was meeting First Presbyterian building in 1824. This is really interesting. Um, and his wife, by the way, Margareta, was a very, very dedicated uh, Presbyterian. She did found the first uh, Sunday school west of the Alleghenies. There's a, there's a bench and a plaque on that bench or, or an inscription on that bench from this church that was put there in 1920 to celebrate the 100 years of her starting the, the the Sunday school west of the Alleghenies. And Sunday school back then included most of the kids in town. It was, you know, like it was all boys for a while. Then they founded a girls' Sunday school. And it was serious business. You had to learn the Bible. And, you know, it, it was a lot like a school in which they, they, they focused the teaching around the Bible, of course. But anyway, the, um, the first church was built, uh, it was, uh, uh, Flemish brick, it, it had two doors, one for women and one for men. The Presbyterians have never, as far as I know, taught separation of the sexes, but in their services, the men went in one door and the women in another, and they sat separately. It's almost like the, Quaker, the uh, Shakers. At any rate, uh, it was a nice little building, and it was later sold in 19, 1849, or in 1848, it was sold to the Catholic congregation in town. The big Catholic church, Good Shepherd, the old one, the original one, was actually built around this church, and then they took it out board by brick by brick. So it, it's right where the Good Shepherd is, but it was, that was the original meeting place. Now, I think an interesting story is that beginning, the church was founded in 1815, began by Thomas Paxton and his two friends. Beginning in 1812, before they actually got the congregation, you know, you have to go through procedures to found a church, you know, you don't just start one, not in the Presbyterian anyway. You have to be approved by the Synod, have to be approved by the Presbytery, et cetera. And there was a synod in, in, in Presbytery in Kentucky going back to 1786. So beginning in 1812, Presbyterians and Methodists, well, several denominations, but I know there were Presbyterians and Methodists, I think probably Episcopalians, met in a public house on the grounds of what are now the old state capitol. And that public house had been just a, a building that was built by lottery proceeds that the General Assembly had, 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 the, had the lottery. And so they were each able to use it, but they didn't get along. They didn't get along in almost any way, you know, and Presbyterians, you know, all thought the others were not right, of course, you know. So they split off and they started going to Love Tavern uh, to meet and then built their own, own church. And their statement was that they found the other congregations uh, contentious and besides that, Presbyterians just could not meet in a building that was built on the basis of lottery proceeds. Presbyterians back then were pretty, pretty strict. There was no music in the church. 
they did they did try to incorporate a, a violin one of the members one of the elders uh, and this is in 1830 every time they played the violin he would get up and leave and come back when the sermon started because he didn't believe that was right so our thinking is, has, has, has evolved some over the years so um, that's that's kind of where we come from it's, it's really I think interesting it's, it's downtown Frankfurt Frankfurt only had six maybe 800 people during this whole time maybe up to a thousand by the 1830s it was basically here on the north side of town there were some people living in South Frankfurt but uh, this this was the center of everything these old these old churches were now turning to the to the Civil War era in 1848 this is probably an authentic picture of close to 1848 of what the church looked like and which is what it looks like today except you know now we have the education building and a stone wall and that sort of thing but very much the same and it was built under the leadership of a Stuart Robinson now you'll notice all these men they're all men until 1995 all these men have DD after the name that's Doctor of Divinity it's an honorary degree it means outstanding scholarship their their seminary usually awards it to them after they've had a life of service well, all these people except three or four are DDs because the Presbyterian Church emphasized very strongly educated clergy uh, a person couldn't just decide to be a minister seminary is necessary approval by the Presbytery ordination by the Presbytery you know it's all a process we cannot call our own minister we are not congregational now the early Puritans were Presbyterians many of them were Presbyterian in their religion but they became Congregationalists in New England every church could call its own pastor make its own policies uh, they had some national guidance but they were allowed to do that Baptist churches are much more congregational now um, of course Episcopal churches are not uh, and we are not um, so um, uh, the the when we call a pastor we ask the presbytery for information about persons who are interested in being pastors and particularly say in this area or something we study those we 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 you know we go and visit people and we you know we, we it's a process of selecting from that then the presbytery has to approve that the presbytery has to make sure that person is ordained to, to preach here it, to, to be a pastor it, this is not done locally i don't want to belabor that but it's 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 a it's a there is a a control in the presbytery to make sure that the person ha has been approved as being properly grounded in in scripture and in our religion properly grounded in how we do things which is not a whole lot like different from others but we have certain things that we that a, a pastor has to uh, commit to doing in a certain way and uh, then we a uh, 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 certain level of education if it's not a seminary graduate and approved by the presbytery it's not going to become a minister so same in your church other churches some now they all in modern times have pastors from seminaries I think but technically speaking some of the more rural little churches can just a person can show up and say I'm a president I mean I'm a whatever minister and let's form a church and they could do it we, we, we don't do that 
you don't do that. <laughs> and the Methodists don't do that. The Methodists are guided by bishops, you know, so it, there's, these others are, are much more um, controlled, I guess you'd say, or kept standardized so things are the same. And that's what I say about all these DDs, you know. This church was a very large church. It's not so much now because churches these days are not very large. You know, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, what religion are you? None and, and, and Poles now are in the majority in this country. And the old mainline downtown churches are having a struggle keeping ministers. Yours, the Methodist, ours, uh, ministers, members, members. So anyway, uh, yeah, so um, this, this uh, Stuart Robinson was the leader who had this church built when this one was sold to the Catholics and removed from their church after they built it from their sanctuary. Robinson was a Civil War's beginning, you know, the, the fight over slavery. Robinson was a brilliant, brilliant minister. He, he founded journals, wrote books. He was considered a real scholar. Unfortunately, he was a very strong pro-slavery type. Um, and he, after he left here, he went to Baltimore, another border state, and did a number of very famous sermons justifying slavery by the Bible. That's kind of unfortunate, but this is where we were. This church was right in the middle of all this because the next person, right when the war began, 1858, this person was here till 1861, Beverly T. Lacey, D.D., uh, and they all kind of look alike with a wild beard, um, left to become Stonewall Jackson's chaplain. So Kentucky was really split, you know. Kentuckians basically, the great majority of Kentuckians believed in the Union, but most Kentuckians owned some slaves. So there was this, the, Lincoln was not popular in Kentucky really among most people, but the Union was. So because of over the slavery issue. So this, this person left to do that. Well, John Smith Hayes, and I won't belabor him too long, but it's a wonderful part of our history, came to us after the Presbyterian Church in Nashville asked him to leave because he refused to pray for the success of Southern Arms. He was a Pennsylvanian, Presbyterian, very strong anti-slavery person. Well, he, and there's a plaque out here that celebrates this, he and the members of our session were all very strong unionists. They kept this church in support of the union throughout the war. Uh, when um, uh, John Hunt Morgan tried to capture Frankfurt, the only state capital that you know had a battle over, uh, and, and, and well, until finally Richmond, but. Um, when, when, when Morgan tried in his, they said they were Confederates, but they were sort of raiders, you know. But anyway, tried to take Frankfurt. Uh, John Smith Hayes took up arms and helped repulse that, that attack. And uh, so he was, uh, he was a fiery, fiery uh, Presbyterian who was a very strong Unionist. Three of the members, well, I think we only had three members of the session back then. It was. Now it's more representative and you have like, we have nine now. Um, but uh, 
the, um, the session, all three members of the session were, as I recall, on Lincoln's Kentucky Military Committee, which meant that they were in the business of raising Union brigades from Kentucky to protect the Union. So this was a very strong Union uh, congregation and was took a major role in, because in, in 1866, Right after the war, Presbyterians in Kentucky met in Henderson, West Kentucky, and they split. And the Southern sympathizing churches went to the Presbyterian church in the United States, not of, but in the United States. And the others were the uh, United Presbyterian Church of the United States, the Northern Church. So we stayed in the Northern Church. Um, South Frankfurt, I believe, is, is, was in the Southern Church. Now, all this reunited in, in 1970, the Kentucky Presbyteries met in Henderson again. Now, this would be the, right now, be the three we have. I think we, at that time, we had a West and a, an East Presbytery. They met in Henderson and reunited. And the, the Southern Church joined the Northern and became part of the Presbyterian Church USA. So um, Kentucky led in that reunion. In fact, my wife and I lived in Danville when the Northern Congregation and the Southern Congregation reunited in Danville, and that was several years before the Henderson reunion. That was the first case of reunion since the Civil War was in Danville, 1970 or 71. Mr. Bowker says starting in the early 20th century, First Presbyterian began to turn its focus outward toward missions. They ran the first homeless shelter in the county, in the area known as Leestown, and they sent aid groups to impoverished areas in the wider region. Let's see, we, you know, education projects in Appalachia, it kind of goes on and on. But one thing that really happened in the, the 40s and the 50s, uh, in 1940, the sanctuary was remodeled, the chancel was added. Names you'll see over and over. Henry Craik uh, provided the funding for that, and Pruitt Graham provided the land. And Mr. Pruitt Graham, well, I think um, Craik gave the money, oh, Sutherland gave the money for the garden. The Christian Education Building was funded by Pruitt Graham. It's always nice to have people in your church at that time that obviously a successful businessman. The chapel was remodeled, all this. Craig and Graham and others were very important in that. So we, we noted here the, the remodeling and the building of the kitchen down here. This was basically storage, I guess, for many years. And outside, you know, there, there are these buttresses, it looks like. Well, those, there used to be fireplaces right there, and those would go, those were chimneys. And the, the church was heated, the, the sanctuary was heated by fires down here. And then the heat would be, and then those were chimneys going out. Oh, that's so, so funny. Yeah. The, of course, the stage wasn't here, the kitchen wasn't here, and so that was all done in, in, in 1958. Not that long ago, you know. Um, longest tenured pastor, kind of an interesting thing about him, Robert Lachlan, he was here when Linda and I came and, and joined. Uh, you know, the history of the Presbyterians is that they struggled with the Church of England. 
uh, for many years, and a lot of them left and went to Northern Ireland. Well, Lachlan was an Irishman. Uh, he, his people came from Ireland. He lived, I think he immigrated from Ireland, as, as I recall. The older members could tell you that. But he was a representative of those who struggled with the Church of England and had to leave and went to Northern Ireland and became what we call today Scots-Irish. Doesn't mean that they're interbred, they probably were, but it means that they were Irish who came from Scotland, so, uh, and they were Presbyterians. So this part tells about how things were added, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, it's probably the kind of thing that would be only interesting to us. Well, when did the, when did the, the chancel get added, that sort of thing? Uh, then a lot of missions, I, I could talk about these, but now we're, we're smaller and we're older. We're not doing quite as many missions to places like where we, where our children go to, to Montreat. That's very important. But we had a mission trip to Mexico. We had uh, mission trips to East Kentucky. We had two to Haiti to install clean water systems. Pensacola, Florida, after a hurricane. We all, my wife and I and others, went to Walter Todd Gymnasium right over here one day a week, every week, opened it up, taught crafts, helped uh, mentor, helped with homework, the kids that lived there. Most of them wanted to go in there and play basketball. That's okay, you know. We, we did that too and tried to maintain some order during that. And then, you know, mission trips to, to uh, Mississippi after a hurricane and, and, uh, and New Orleans. Our first woman pastor came only in 1995, uh, Jana Hall. And since then, we've had, uh, well, three, I guess. Mr. Bowker says the city of Frankfurt is rich with history, and First Presbyterian has often been in the very center of it. Because so much of this happened. I mean, you know, things like Zachary Taylor visiting here right after this building was opened. And by the way, he, he was very impressed. The women of the church uh, acquired the first parsonage uh, they're, by their fundraising activities, they bought a house for the minister to live in. They furnished pretty much this new building by their activities. And uh, Robinson is, is reputed to have said, well, when the, when the uh, capital of the United States is finished, I'll send the women over there to furnish it. So, you know, it, it was a, quite a good job. We're very proud that John Marshall Harlan was a Sunday school superintendent here when he was in Frankfurt. He didn't come from Frankfurt, and he was educated in, in Danville at, um, at that center. Um, I don't, don't know where he went to law school. Um, but Harlan, Frankfurt needs to recognize Harlan more. He didn't say it this way, but, he, but he's, he's quoted, <laughs> actually misquoted, but the meaning is the same. In Plessy versus Ferguson, that case was Plessy had been told that he couldn't ride on a train car with white people. And so he appealed this. Well, somebody appealed it for him. He, he wouldn't have done that on his own, of course. But anyway, it was appealed. got to the Supreme Court. Eight to nothing, they said that the law was right, that Plessy did not have a right to ride where he wanted to. And that was a different time and era, you know, right after the, the Civil War uh, and the beginning of Jim Crow and all that around the turn of the century. But Harlan is reputed to have said, and he said something very similar, separate is inherently unequal. When you make different accommodations, that's inherently unequal. And he, 
he dissented, but of course it was eight to one. He, he lost. Mr. Bowker has served the church both in the session and as a trustee. I asked him what he found most compelling about First Presbyterian. We are very mission-oriented, uh, and the Presbyterian Church is. Um, I'm not saying others aren't, but not at all. But we do all we can, you know, less these days because we don't have quite the members who can go to Haiti and, and build things and stuff that we, we had. But um, the, the mission orientation of the Presbyterian Church I don't know if it goes back to Scotland or not, I doubt that, but it definitely goes back to Witherspoon and those uh, missionaries who came to the West and uh, founded churches like, like Rice and others. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, taking the word, but also um, doing as Paul said, seeing, seeing the faces of God in the faces of those you help. I left the Fellowship Hall with a new sense of scope. First Presbyterian's impact, those it had touched and those who had touched it, reached much further than I had imagined. To follow that thread into the present and to understand this church's mission today, I met with the current pastor, Reverend J.T. Silence. I asked what drew him to First Presbyterian. I like the church's diversity. Uh, the church has diversity in a lot of different ways. The most notice, noticeable piece is probably the number of uh, African-Americans or African descendants. We've got a, a large popula population of Cameroonians, but it's 13 to 14% African-American. Um, and that's something you don't see. Presbyterians believe in diversity and inclusivity. It's certainly, you know, we, we believe that Jesus would have included anyone uh, at, at table, for example, or just in, in ministry, friendship, companionship. Uh, but it's rare when you find a church where that actually happens. And so that was one of the things that I was attracted to. And I, uh, But back to just the overall diversity of the church, I also know that there's some gender and, and sexual identity inclusivity here, that not everybody is heterosexual and uh, not everybody is cisgendered. So, uh, and this is a church that welcomes them. As a queer Christian myself, First Presbyterian was the first congregation in which I saw myself reflected. When I was a kid, the first gay person I ever knew by name was a member of First Pres. That's important, too. Again, that's another talking point that a lot of churches, I think, try to emphasize, but to see it actually played out, practice, and see people of that sort of diversity as part of a congregation is it's it's special, and I, I and I think that's that's a strength. I mean, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that's so homogenized, like an enclave of you know a bunch of white, cisgendered, heterosexual you know people who only sing one kind of music. Uh, um, but so that 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 was a big piece, and just the the fact that they still have a preschool that's that's up and running and, and doing well. Uh, the church considers that a a ministry we we do charge um, a tuition to the parents who bring their kids to the school, but it's heavily subsidized. Um, and it's that's been the church started that preschool for for that reason to to be a, an outreach to the community and and that's one of the things when when they the church called me to be 
the minister here was, they wanted me to try to reconnect more with the school. Because for a long time it's been more like two separate organizations kind of inhabiting the same space and they don't really want that. They want it to be connected. So I'm working really hard to get to know the, well, work with the staff and support them, and uh, but also get to know the, the students because I have them for chapel once a week and their families too. So like if I see them out at the local ice cream parlor or uh, listen to music on Friday night downtown, you know, I, I can make another connection and I don't know. I, I value that. So that's, but that's another whole part of the attraction to me to coming here was this is a small town and it's, you do see the same people. Uh, I see neighbors that live nearby and walk around. So we, we chat a little bit and, you know, I, I like that. That's, uh, I grew up in a small town, so this feels more normal for me. How long have you been here at First Presbyterian? A little more than a year and a half. So the culture of diversity kind of fostered by First Presbyterian is something that was pre-existing when you got here. Absolutely. What do you think, what do you think it was that signaled to people, and I know that you came here after the fact, but like what about the nature of this church, the positioning of this church, the culture mm -hmm. of this church indicated to people that this is a place where they would feel welcome and at home. Yeah. Um, I don't know for a certain, I, I know that the, the Cameroonians who are part of the church, um, there were some first generation Cameroonians who were here for one reason or another. And a lot of times with immigration, people, gravitate towards places where there are others like them. One example is in, uh, I used to live in Lexington and there's a large uh, population of Ukrainians. And there's a Ukrainian church just close to where I used to live there. Um, and it's because some of the, the first generation folks came there, found work and were able to help other folks come in and uh, who, who wanted to leave their their country of origin for whatever reason. And I think with, with us, with the Cameroonians, uh, some of the first ones were just Presbyterian and they had this mindset, when I go to church, I go to a Presbyterian church. And there are some other Cameroonians who go to South Frankfurt Presbyterian, our, our sister congregation in town. Uh, but, you know, we have several here and I think that's just part of it. And some of them are family. Um, and they also look at family differently, which is, that's very churchy because a lot of people like to use family language when they talk about the church. We are a church family, you hear sometimes. Um, they they live that out in, in a deep and rich way. They're, so they might call someone like grandparent or father, but it might not actually be a, a father or grandparent. It might be a different type of relative, or in other cases, it might not even be a blood relative. So they, they came uh, just because of denominational expectation. I, I do think... Uh, in the past several years, the Presbyterians have worked at what what does it mean to be a church? Like trying to define that. What does it mean to, uh, and some people look at us from outside and say, well, we're not biblical because like if we say we're inclusive of, uh, let's say a homosexual couple or individual, uh, some people say, well, that's not in the Bible. That's not, it, it is. Uh, the word homosexual didn't exist for it's, it's only been around for about 200 years, that, that actual word, homosexual. Um, and it came up out of necessity, and it was like a social scientist, I think, that kind of put it together. And there are behaviors in the Bible that might 
be considered homosexual behavior, but it's not. There was there's no one in the biblical story that woke up or went and met neighbors and said, "Oh, by the way, I'm I'm gay. I'm coming out." Or um, it was such a different society, a different structure. Even if somebody felt that deeply within themselves, it would have been impossible, I think, in a in a society like that to, to make statements like that. And, and there was no example to follow either. There was, uh, um, but a lot of people point to the story of, uh, and if, if I'm getting off topic, we can shift back. The topic is wherever you're going. Okay. Well, like a lot of people talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, which was the, the famous story is there are, there were these messenger visitors, um, often translated angels. That's what we would call them. Uh, but they were just kind of these otherworldly visitors that were visiting uh, Lot and the neighborhood people wanted to said, hey, open open the door, let us. I, I don't remember the actual word, but it, the it, it wasn't a hospitable thing. And it was a, more we wanted to dominate and, and show them who, who runs this town kind of thing. And Lot refused to open the door, and um, that's controversial too, because he even offered his own virgin daughter, which is horrifying. Um, but there are several places in the Bible where that particular event is described, redescribed, and every place where it's mentioned, it's it talks about the reason that that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged harshly was because they were not places that offered hospitality. There was a a cultural mandate that if, if you met a traveler, you offer them hospitality. Maybe it's a drink of water. Maybe it's a bed to sleep in, in your own house, which, uh, you know, something we don't do these days. And that's, uh, some people do that and that's radical trust. Um, but yeah, every time that the, the Sodom and Gomorrah sin is re-described in the Bible, it's, it's a, uh, fault of hospitality. And, um, so people will look at us and say we're not biblical when we welcome those who are diverse, those who are different. I say we are biblical, and I say we take a deeper dive into the Bible and look at what's in there instead of just picking and choosing. We, we have to deal with the difficult stuff, not just our favorite Psalm 23 sorts of readings. So um, so it's uh, long-winded again. I'm a pastor. It's what I do. Um, but theology is is important, and living a theology that seems authentic to our sacred text and and the God that that sacred text describes. I asked JT to speak on the structure of the church. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the Presbyterian church is named after its form of governance. It's based on a Greek word that has to do with elders. Presby, presbos is, is the Greek word for elder. And the word means ruled by elders. We are a... Uh, sort of a democratic uh, organization. As, as a pastor, I have authority, but I'm not the sole voice of authority. Uh, rare is a time when a pastor in a Presbyterian church will say, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it because I'm the pastor and I'm calling on my authority to do it. It's just not something that happens. We, we are leaders. Uh, we, do, we, we moderate the, uh, the group of elders, which we call the session, but they're the ones who... Um, make the decisions. They're the ones who decide when you organize, what are you going to name the church? Uh, what's the church structure going to be like? What are the bylaws going to be like? Uh, 
what curriculum are we going to use for Sunday school and, and youth group and um, and it's a lot of people don't know this but uh, it was that sort of organization and democratic process that Presbyterians brought to this land when we were colonizing it um, and so the idea of having a, a Congress, a House, and a Senate is heavily based on Presbyterian process and theology too. Like we, we believe that, you know, Jesus gathered apostles for a reason. And so that's part of the, you know, the mirror. And the, the funny thing is um, the, the numbers. You will often see variables of 12. So like a lot of churches will, will maybe have 12 elders. If it's a big church, it might have 24 because it's two groups of 12. Or, um, But it's easily, you know, this church I think used to have 12 elders and they dropped it to nine. So they took three off. But again, that's a, you know, biblical number. So One thing JT came back to was his desire to reconnect First Presbyterian Church with its adjoining preschool. Yeah. The, so the school's been, as I said, running for 60 years. Um, it's, it's changed a lot. Just running what it means to run a school is, is different now than it meant, than what it meant 60 years ago. You know, then it was, let's use this space. It would, we've got this big educational area. We use it on Sunday, but it's better stewardship to use it more days of the week. And the, the first year I remember, uh, since we just kind of reviewed all this, they had four students and one teacher, um, the teachers might have been volunteers. There wasn't any particular uh, training or credentialing necessary. But through the years, out of necessity, you realize, oh, gosh, we need to have a certain sort of education. You need to know how to teach a, a young child and, and what to teach them. And, and so now we are both licensed by the state. And there's another um, it's sort of a rating program called Kentucky All-Stars. And so they give you a stars rating and, and we've carried four stars, which you, you can get five stars, which is very hard to, to get. So it's a very prestigious uh, rating program, but we, we do that. And that's a voluntary, like licensing is voluntary too, if you want to be a preschool. But th that's part of what separates a preschool from a daycare because it's, um, daycares certainly have their place and their importance and, and some families need them. Uh, but at a preschool, there's an emphasis on an educational process. And that's not to say that there's not learning that doesn't take place at a daycare. I think it does, but it's, it's just more by intention and by design at a school. And so that's, uh, that's a little bit about how the school has, has changed, but that's not really what you asked me. Uh, but I, I love that we do that. I, I have been a part of uh, other churches where there used to be a preschool uh, or another one where there was a preschool, but it was just a totally separate... And it was a landlord-tenant relationship between the host church and the, the school. This is more like, uh, even those who don't see the kids or the parents still feel like the school is a part of us. And they're, they're proud of the fact that their, their church does something for those families. Um, and, you know, for me, you, you look at mainstream what well they used to be called mainstream denominations but they're now much more sideline denominations because the other independent churches that have popped up they're they're bigger um, we've been declining for decades in the united states and before that there were decades of decline in uh, in 
European countries, so it's uh, right now in, in the United States, the biggest, the largest growing sector of religious preference is none of the above. Like you have all these different choices on a list and you check none of the above. Um, you know, you could, you could talk for several hours about what are the reasons behind that. And, and I think they're variable reasons, but um, I think at the end, the church needs to reclaim its, its sense of how, how to be hospitable, how to be welcoming. Um, and then if they, if, if some people have a bad experience at a church where they think a church is too judgmental or too hypocritical and, and we strive to not be hypocritical or, or judgmental. We strive to be welcoming but also faithful to our God, faithful in our, our witness and, and what we do. And um, the easiest way to do that is with people who are already in close proximity to you. So here we have all these families who bring kids. And and if they're, if those families are vested in another church, we're not going to bother them and tell them their church is wrong. But if there are families that might benefit from being part of a supportive group, which a church can and should be, um, we would want to reach out to them. And so that's that's part of my goal is to try to get to know those those folks and, and be there when they drop off in the morning and get to know the kids, like I said, when they're in chapel and um, so that if I see them out at, at a grocery store or a local event, I can say, hey, and, uh, and I've done that before. And, and uh, usually I know the kid and I, then I, so I say hi to the kid, which could be weird, but usually the kid is like, oh, mom, this is Pastor JT. And sometimes the mom already knows that because she's seen my picture somewhere or seen me. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I, I hope to do is to just let them know that we're, we're glad they come to school here for preschool. But if they want more, if they want a, a worshiping family, a supportive family, we're here for that too. I asked JT what draws families who aren't connected to the church to the preschool. I mean, the, the school has a very good reputation in town. Uh, we don't have to advertise. There's always a wait list for our, our two-year-old classes, which we start at two, and then we have three-year-old classes, and then pre-K from four to early, you know, young five-year-olds. Um, and so part of it is just reputation, word of mouth. Um, but I think it's earned. And that th you can point to examples where, gosh, this one company, this one business maybe a restaurant even has a great reputation, but it's just not what it used to be. We continue to strive to provide an excellent experience. And, and uh, yeah, we still get some feedback about things that we can change. And we, as I said earlier, we, we have changed with the times and, and tried to uh, stay current with what's important in terms of offering early childhood education. Um, so it's uh, part of its reputation, but I think it's an earned reputation. The Presbyterian Church is considered a mainline denomination in the United States. In the first half of the 20th century, ecumenical churches like Presbyterian, Methodist, and Episcopal churches represented a majority of Protestant worship in the USA. By the beginning of the 21st century, membership in mainline churches more than halved due to both a drop in reported religious affiliation and due to a migration toward evangelical churches among Protestants. With this in mind, I asked JT how First Presbyterian stays active and engaged with the community in an environment where his church has less prominence in people's daily lives. 
Yeah, we are trying to um, to, to stay visible and, and relevant to the community. Uh, we've got one committee that hosts different events that, that are um, we, we try to publicize. We had one that was very, very well attended that was uh, there was a gentleman who came to town by the name of Hezekiah Watkins. Mr. Watkins was the youngest of all the Freedom Riders. They, they rode buses uh, and many times were arrested. He was arrested over a hundred times. He, he shared part of that. He shared several stories of his experience of that back in the the 60s. Um, but it was you know they they were there were places where they were still having segregated bus service. Uh, he, he his first encounter was at a bus station and there was a, a whites only section and he stepped across the line to the whites only section and he was arrested at, and he was 13 years old at the time. They arrested a 13 year old boy, didn't know where to keep him and he ended up, because the jail was over overcrowded with other freedom riders, he actually was on death row as a 13 year old boy, it was crazy. Not that he was, he didn't have a death sentence but that was the only location they had to, to put him once he was in custody. Um, but you know, so so telling that story, um, and and reminding people that that's not too long ago in this country that that was a practice. And even though the Supreme Court said that sort of busing system was illegal, there were places where they didn't care and they still did it because this is the way we've always done it. So we we do like uh, some of those social justice sorts of programs. But sometimes we just get together for. Um, just having good old-fashioned fun. Uh, we don't do, you know, a long time ago, like you said, churches used to be a primary and in some towns the primary and in some cases the only place for social interaction. Then they would do dances and dinners at churches and we don't do dances and whatnot, but, we, you know, food always draws people in, so we try to bring food when when uh, we have events. But we've, we've done uh, trivia contests, so people have come and uh, it's, a, it's a way to get people in the building and let them know that we enjoy having fun. We're, we're going to do a, um, it's sort of, a, there was a popular TV show a couple of years back, and it might still be on, I don't know, but Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? So we're going to, that's the angle of trivia that's coming up end of this month. And we've done, uh, we did a Christmas karaoke with ugly sweaters in December. So we, we like to do fun stuff like that just to get people introduced to one another. I asked JT about the relationship between First Presbyterian and South Frankfurt Presbyterian. Uh, it, it definitely is a, a sister congregation. Um, and it, at one point in, in history, they weren't. It, and you'll see there's in Frankfurt, there's historical markers all over town because a lot of historic events took place. You know, But one of the things it says um, out on our plaque outside our building is that this church had uh, union loyalties during the Civil War, and I guess South didn't, or, and I don't know how cut and dry that was, because it could have been kind of both and in, in both places. But we had a pastor that back then even took up arms against the Confederacy and was in, in favor of preserving the Union, and, and I don't know how those um, differences, how that divide was was bridged over the years, but it, you know, um, the two churches have done several programs, uh, types of ministry in conjunction together. Um, in the past, there have there, there have been times when there was one youth group, but two churches. Uh, that's not currently the, the case, but we've, we've talked about doing some adult ministry with them. We, we did an adult um, 
kind of a, it was a book discussion basically. And we had a couple of folks from South that came to that back in, in the Lenten season. And they just had a kind of a summer study series for adults and we had three or four First Pres folks hang out with them and, and uh, learn with them. And then during the season of Lent, Lent always begins with Ash Wednesday and uh, Holy Week, there's uh, one of the big, the big days in, in Holy Week is Maundy Thursday, celebrating the Last Supper, observing, remembering the Last Supper. And we always do, I, I say always, for at least recent history, the two churches have gotten together and, and celebrated those two um, services together. So like this year we hosted uh, Maundy Thursday and they hosted Ash Wednesday and then we flipped venues last year, I think. So it's, um, and, and we, we continue to talk with them and, and look for ways to, to cooperate in ministry and realize that we're on the, the same team, whether someone's a member here or a member there, we're still, it is, it is often, the Presbyterian Church is often described as a connectional church, but sometimes those words fall flat. Um, I'm in a place in my life where I feel like we need to reclaim that connection, and, and not just with our own denomination, but like with, with Ascension, we have a, a very nice ministerial association in town, and all the churches are invited, and not all of them choose to, to participate, but it's, it's a way to celebrate unity. There's a, you know, there's a Thanksgiving service that's usually a cooperation of the churches that are part of that group, a, a Martin Luther King Day service as well. Um, so th we're at a place where I think churches need to find ways to work together instead of say, well, we're, we're islands and we're, we're, we're like them and we respect them, but we don't need them and they don't need us. Whether you need them or don't need them or whether someone needs us or doesn't need us, we need to work together. On a typical Sunday, JT says you'll see around 40 to 60 people in the sanctuary, but the church's attendance goes beyond the walls of the building. We have to remember that there is an online worshiping component because we do live stream every Sunday. And, and so many churches started this through COVID, wh whether it was Zoom or uh, Facebook Live or YouTube Live or any of the other opportunities, churches found ways to continue to have worship even when you didn't have a setting of scores of people in the same space. Um, so that's and so that's part of the wider congregation or those that you see. And, and I, I love that we still do that because we've got some who have had injuries or uh, illnesses that prevent them from coming to the building or make it just super darn hard for them to come to the building even though we have an elevator in this, you know, 200-year-old building. My final question for JT was about his own inspiration and relationship with the church, how the community of First Presbyterian feeds him spiritually. Yeah, that's easy. I, and, and I, you know, I've alluded to this a couple different times during our conversation. I love the group. And when I try to market a church to other folks and invite folks to, to come, that's what I market is... The group, the word, again, is uh, the word church comes from ecclesia, which is Greek. It means gathering. It doesn't mean the building. And that's, so that's my, my charge to them almost every Sunday is remember when you're leaving this space, you're not leaving the church. You are going out as the church. Um, and they're, they're a group of people that will, will love you even if they disagree on, a, you know, one thing or another that we have to talk about or decide or who gets elected to be an elder. Um, at the end of the day, they'll love you. If you're in the hospital, they'll they'll come see you. 
if you're stuck at home and can't do meals for yourself, they'll make you a casserole. Um, they'll cut your yard. They'll walk your dog. Whatever, you know, it, and that's, that's what I think a church should be. So for me to see a group living that out, I just wish there was a way that I could tell people that story and they would believe me and think, oh, wow, that is a cool thing. That is what I need in my life. And every, everybody needs support. And, and whether it's your, your actual neighbors in your neighborhood or your group of friends you went to one school with, you know, that's, that's important. But um, a church is an easy place to get that. And this church lives it. Though we didn't start today on Main Street, we'll wrap things up there. We'll head back into the sanctuary by way of the live stream, and I'll let JT send you out. Once again, I remind you that when you leave the space where you are worshiping, you're not leaving the church. You are going out as the church. You're going out into a world that possesses many valleys, but also has many high places, many places of beauty and hope. Go in peace and share the stories of beauty and of hope. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you and all of God's people. Amen. I offer my thanks to my guests, William Bowker and J.T. Silence. Thank you to the Capital City Museum for providing constant support, to the City of Frankfurt for making this production possible, and to you, listener, for sharing your time here with me. Any Old Place acknowledges the long history of life in the land we now know as Frankfort, Kentucky, which has been home to Cherokee, Osage, Yuchi, and Shawnee peoples. Any Old Place is a production of the Capital City Museum in Frankfort, Kentucky. To learn more about the Capital City Museum, visit capitalcitymuseum.com or come see us in person at 325 Ann Street, Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. This program has been recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clay Wallace. I offer it to you, listener, with the belief that story grounds you in both space and time, and with the hope that it inspires you to befriend the world around you. You can find something worth tending in any old place. <laughs>